Well, good morning, Chapel family. What a delight to be here together in the Lord's house. I encourage you to take your Bibles out. If you would, open to the book of Jonah and to chapter 4. Today we're coming to the end of this wonderful book, a marvelous, a, a great story full of surprises. At the same time, it's also a true story. It was told to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, for their learning, for their instruction, but it's also here with, with lots of lessons for you and me in our day as well. Just a quick review if you weren't here around the beginning. Chapter 1, we met Jonah, the prophet of God who became a prodigal prophet, a runaway preacher when he tried to get away from God. God had called him to go to Nineveh, the great city in Assyria, to go preach. And uh, Jonah, instead of heading northeast to Nineveh, headed to the west, going as far as he could, taking a ship to the Spanish port of Tarshish. And he didn't get there. Most of you know the story. He ends up overboard and inside the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2 is a beautiful prayer, a poem, I believe, a song that Jonah prays from inside the fish. And while he prays this great psalm that is all about God's goodness and God's deliverance, and while he promises to do his preacher duties, we noted that he still, in this psalm and in this prayer, he does not confess and acknowledge or even repent of his rebellion and his, his sin against God. We found, though, there in that chapter what I think is the key line, if there is a key line of this book, and that is this verse, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace which could be theirs. Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8. Then came chapter 3. Jonah now obeys God and uh, having been spit up by the fish onto the shore, Jonah goes to Nineveh and starts to preach. And when he gets there, rather than the people in any way hurting Jonah or killing him, he ends up, unbelievably, these people respond by listening to Jonah. They, they believe God. They respond in repentance. And it results in the greatest revival of world history. And that brings us here to chapter 4. If you're a baseball player and your team just won the World Series, if you were a singer and you just were awarded a Grammy, if you were a scientist and just awarded the Nobel Prize, or a bowler and you bowled a perfect game, or you as a business person land the ultimate contract, whatever your sport, whatever your hobby, whatever your career, if you just achieved the highest goal, you won the great prize, what do you do? According to the commercials, you go to Disneyland. Or at least we celebrate. We have a party. Woo-hoo! We just won! I, just, I can't believe it! I just Have you ever been there where you, you hit that high point of something and you just, whoa! What happens if you're a preacher and God uses you to lead the greatest revival in the world ever? I mean, you, I would think if you're a preacher, you're going to go, whoa! Wow! Yes, God, this is awesome! 
That would be probably a normal response, but nothing in this story has been normal so far. And uh, if you don't know the rest of the story, you're in for a surprise. In some ways, if it wasn't so pathetic, what comes next would be comical. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Like I said, if you haven't read this story before, you're going, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a guy that ran from God, got, got thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, spit up on dry land three days later, obeys God, goes, preaches in Nineveh, the world's most brutal, wicked place. And there's this amazing revival. Everybody turns and puts, they, they humble themselves before God. There's repentance and God says, all right, I'll spare you guys. And Jonah's response, this preacher, this man of God, is displeased exceedingly and angry. Angry, that, that, that word in Hebrew literally means glowing. He's so angry, he's flushed. His, his face is red. His, his fists are clenched. The veins in his forehead are bulging. You know, his... Argh! We wonder, what is up with this guy? Keep reading. Now he prays. Chapter 1, he didn't pray. He finally prayed before he went to the, when he got, was about to drown. Now he prays again. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah this, has lodged a complaint against God. He is angry. And now we finally learn why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. It wasn't because it was inconvenient. It wasn't because he was afraid because the Ninevites were these brutal people and exceedingly wicked and he figured he might get beaten up or killed or tortured. He says, I didn't want to go. God, this is what I told you back then. I don't want to go because I knew it was going to happen. Jonah did not want the Ninevites to be rescued. He did not want them to be saved. He was bigoted. He would rather see the Ninevites die and burn in hell. And he would rather die than to go do that, than to go preach. Isn't that amazing? But not only is he bigoted, he's blind. Not physically blind. He is spiritually blinded. Jonah makes a statement here about God. It's the third time in this book that he makes a statement about God that is good and right. And it's the third time that his behavior, his living, doesn't match up to his theological statement. And if we're honest, that sometimes is true in our lives as well, isn't it? 
things we profess, things we say we believe about God, but in real life we don't live it out. But it shows up big time in Jonah. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 9, and Jonah makes this statement. He's on the deck of the ship, and the and if you recall, the sailors are trying to figure out what's going on with this storm. It is so so violent and so bizarre, they think it must be supernatural, and they're casting lots to see whose fault is this. And the lot goes to Jonah, and they say, who are you? What are you doing? What's going on? What have you done that maybe this is happening? He says, well, I am a prophet of God, and I worship the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. I worship the God who made everything. Yahweh is His name. And the guys go, are you insane? If you really believe in this God, if you really worship Him, if He really is the Creator of everything, you're nuts! You can't run from Him! You see, the sailors recognized instinctively that what Jonah professed is totally insane compared to what Jonah is doing. Then you go to chapter 2 and that statement that I quoted earlier that Jonah makes another great truth about God. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace which could be theirs. God is a good God who is full of grace. And when we cling to idols instead of worshiping God, when we cling to idols instead of following Him, we forfeit, we miss out on the grace that God intends for us. And Jonah makes this wonderful declaration from the belly of the fish as he offers this great prayer of rejoicing that God has rescued him. And yet Jonah is clinging to his idols he still doesn't confess or repent of his wrong thinking and wrong action. And then we come here to chapter 4. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, Jonah says to God and about God, he says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah didn't make that up. He knew the Scriptures. That comes from the book of Exodus in chapter 34. And it's God speaking and describing who He is. And, and that, that passage is quoted another half dozen times in the Scriptures. Jonah, like any student of the Word, knew what the Scripture said. God is, grace, he is gracious. He is merciful. You know, by the way, there's a lot of people who think, you know, the God in the New Testament is a God of grace. The God in the Old Testament is a God of vengeance and a God of anger and a God of wrath. And, and you know, the, that's a faulty understanding, a faulty reading of the Scripture. The most common depiction of God in the Old Testament is this exact description. He is a God of grace and of mercy he is slow to anger. He abounds in love. Ironically, you see, Jonah says, God, I knew this is what you are like. And that's why I didn't want to come here. He's angry and he's bigoted and he's blinded. Because he knows exactly who God is. 
And he's mad at God for being who God is. You know, there's an important lesson here. When your idea of what God should be clashes with what God says about who He is, who's in the wrong? If God says, I am this or I am not that, but you're over here saying, well, I don't know about that. See, we have an awful lot of Jonah's alive today and even in the churches who want to shape and make God into what we think God should be like. And they may not say it in so many words, but they would say, you know, I really don't care what the Bible says, but I think God should be this, or I think God shouldn't be that. My favorite, I hear it so often, well, I can't believe in a God who is fill-in-the-blank. Well, that's your problem, not God's. If God says, this is who I am, we need to listen. You see, because if, if I say, well, I, 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 don't, I don't receive that. God, I think you need to be like this. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is making God in our own image, in what we think God should be, rather than worshiping God and following God for who He is. God has revealed Himself clearly And Jonah knows the theology, he knows the truth, but he is rebelling against it. He is essentially acting as an idolater. I knew you were like this, and I don't like it. I love God's response. Jonah, verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well? To be angry. Like a parent talking to your little kid. Uh, Johnny, is this a good attitude to have? Johnny, is this the right way to act? Remember, this is the prophet of God, the preacher, and he has to be talked to like a child. God graciously, you see, gives His prophet an opportunity to reflect, to rethink His behavior, to rethink His attitudes. Jonah should be full of joy, but instead all he is, he's full of anger. And I just note how gracious God is, how patient. You see, personally, if it were me, I would think, that the proper response here from God is a well-placed lightning bolt. That's, a, that's enough, Jonah. You're done. <laughs> but no, God is so gracious with this insolent jerk. He just says, Jonah, is this the right thing to do? Jonah's response is kind of like if you've ever been mad and you know you're wrong, you're, you're, you're just, and you know you're in the wrong, but you're just mad. And your wife or somebody says, why are you mad? What do you do? See, your response might be something like, I'm not mad. <laughs> After a while, you learn, well, all that did was just confirm what everybody suspected. 
And that's where Jonah is. He's in that spot. Anything he says is going to convict him unless he just says and gives up and says, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong, and confesses. But he won't do that. He's too stubborn. He's too proud. He goes off and he pouts. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city. He says absolutely nothing. He just gets up and leaves. (laughs) He's been complaining. He's angry. He leaves town. He goes out to the east of town. Says he went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself. Sat there. He sat under it in the shade till he could should see what would become of the city. So he goes out. He builds a booth to get a little shade. There he sits and he sulks. He's just hoping that just maybe, just maybe, they're going to mess up. God is going to change His mind. And that God is going to you know, do a little Sodom and Gomorrah action here. We're going to see God toast the city with some fire and brimstone and see the place go up in smoke and He wants a front row seat. And He's just going to sit there and sulk. Just maybe God will figure out He's been right, that Jonah's been right all along. Again, I would think a well-placed lightning bolt is in order. But instead, God in His grace is about to take Jonah to school. Jonah doesn't realize it, but right now he's got a seat in God's classroom. And Jonah gets schooled. Verse 6. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Again, a comical picture. There's Jonah sitting there in his little booth waiting for God to maybe change his mind and toast this city. And God starts school. In the morning, God begins He sends a little shoot up out of the ground, a little vine. And it grows up very quickly in just a matter of a short time, whether minutes or an hour. It grows up and it grows over this this little shelter, this little booth that Jonah had made. And this vine grows up. And you see, it's hot out there in the desert. I've never been to northern Iraq, but I understand it's a hot place. I was actually talking with one of our... Folks, this morning, Chuck Hunter has spent some time as a soldier in North Iraq. He confirmed it. I haven't been there. I have been out and grew up in West Texas and out in the deserts and out in the southwest. And 
And in the days it can get hot. And in the northern Iraq, I understand it's 100 to 115 degrees in the daytime. And that little booth that he made was some shade and a little bit of coolness there, but it wasn't that cool. It was still uncomfortable. But God grows this vine up. And as the vine grows up, and, and you see there's, it, it provides better shade. And, and under a tree, under some living thing, there's a little bit of coolness and moisture and the, as the breeze comes through, it evaporates that and it cools down. It's so much nicer. And Jonah is just like, ah. And our miserable, angry prophet is now very happy. It says, just like he was exceedingly angry, now he is exceedingly glad because of the plant. Oh, this is awesome. And I have a feeling it's more than just the physical comfort. I think as a plant grows up, Jonah's going, hmm. You know? That was obviously a miraculous thing that happened there. Now, first of all, if I were Jonah, I would think that when this plant starts growing up in a matter of minutes or an hour and it starts growing over this thing, I would be concerned about, you know, okay, the lightning bolt was a little quick. God is going to do it slow. He's going to have a plant eat me. (laughs) I would kind of think I would run from a a plant that grows that fast. But Jonah is not he's not a guy who gets afraid of much. He just sits there and realizes, hey, this is a blessing. And I think what he's done is he's not only is he more physically comfortable, he's going, you know, I think God's coming around to my side. Obviously, God is blessing me because he's realized I have a little bit of wisdom here. I saw ahead to what he was going to do. This wasn't a good idea, God. You know, now you're, he's agreeing. So he spends the day and that night, a wonderful night there in the cool desert and probably the best night's sleep he's had in a while. And Wakes up in the morning and at dawn, God appointed a worm to come and to chew on the vine till it withered in a very short time. And that must have been some big worm because this was a pretty big vine and that would also be a scary thing. And just in a very short time, this vine withers and the sun comes up and the heat starts to come on and that vine quickly shrivels up and it's no longer shade and the wind starts to blow. And Chuck Hunter said that when the wind starts to come out of the east, he said it feels like a blow dryer. He says it also picks up all the sand. And so as it's blowing, you are getting sandblasted. And so Jonah has the heat, he has the the sand, and he's got the sun barreling down. And it gets so that, as the text said, that he starts to get faint. He's about to pass out. The heat is getting so intense. And so Jonah, who yesterday was exceedingly glad, today is like, kill me, kill me, God. That's where he was the day before that. Now... And by the way, isn't it a good thing that God doesn't answer every prayer we pray exactly like we ask? God gives a little grace to Jonah. A lot of grace to Jonah. Instead of killing him, He asks a question again. Same one as before, a little more specific. Jonah, verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry, and he adds, about the plant. 
This time Jonah doesn't keep quiet. He's got an answer and he said, Yes, I'd do well to be angry, angry enough to die. You killed my plant. I'm ticked. Again, lightning bolt would be nice, I think. But God has set Jonah up. School is now officially in session. Jonah, you know what? You and I have something in common now. So let's talk. You see, Jonah, all the way through this book, Jonah has exhibited care for really only one person or one thing, himself. Jonah right now has exhibited care about a plant. And God says, good, that's enough for us to work with. And let's compare something. Let's compare notes. It's the third time in the book that there's been a comparison. The first time was Jonah with the sailors, chapter 1. And the sailors were shown as those who fear God. They're afraid of God. And they worship Him. And Jonah, the prophet, the preacher of God, says he fears God. But all the time he's going, no! (laughs) And running. And he doesn't fear God at all. He'd rather die than... Submit to God. Second chapter, Jonah says, yeah, um, God, okay, I'll, I'll do what you say. I'll go. I'll be a preacher. Okay, you win. This whole fish thing convinced me. I, I can't fight you. In chapter 3, he's, that's contrasted with the people of Nineveh, the most wicked people on earth, who... who they have heartfelt, deep sorrow and repentance over their sin. And Jonah never does utter one word of, God, you're, you know, I really shouldn't have run. God, I shouldn't uh, think that I'm smarter than you. See, contrasted. Here's the third contrast in the book. This time, God is saying, let's draw a little contrast between you and me. Between your affections, your compassion, your pity, and, and mine. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant. You have compassion on the plant. And later God is going to talk about his, the same word, his pity, his compassion on the Ninevites. You see, Jonah, you have, the question is, why does God really care about Nineveh? And as God contrasts Jonah to him, he makes the point, Jonah, you have compassion on a plant Plants don't have feelings. Plants don't experience pain. Have you noticed that? You can go pull the leaves off your rose bush, you know, or your flowers, and you'll never hear your plant go, Oh, ah, ah, oh, ah, stop it, ah, oh, oh, I hurt, ah, you're killing me. Plants don't feel stuff. People do. Jonah, you feel for a plant. You have pity on a plant. Huh. God has compassion to spare pain and suffering. Secondly, God calls attention to investment. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. Jonah, you were sitting here sulking in your booth, and this plant just grew up. Did you plant it? Did you water it? Did you talk nice to it and encourage it? Did you, did you, did you do anything? Yeah. 
You loved the plant because it brought you joy. It brought you comfort. But you had no investment in it. On the other hand, Jonah has already confessed back in chapter 1, God is the Creator of everything. Where did the Ninevites come from? God created them. God made the Ninevites. God is sovereign in the affairs of men. It is, where did the Ninevites get the strength to build a city? Where did the, the Ninevites, how did they grow into a city? God gave them children. How did they have the intelligence to build a city? God gave them intelligence and wisdom to make that, as we saw last week, a marvelous city. See, God gave strength and health and wisdom and children, materials and rain and food. God has been intricately involved in the lives of all of His creatures and intricately invested in their lives from creation and every second of every day since. God is invested. Thirdly, He speaks to the value of the object of Jonah's compassion. Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You see, plants come and go. It's what plants do. They live for a while and they die. Sometimes they, Most of them live longer than one night or one day like this one. But they don't. They tend to come and go. It's no big deal. Look at my yard. Right now it's growing by midsummer. May not be the case. Plants come and go, but people aren't plants. People, you see, are eternal souls. Plants come and go. People will live forever. Either in eternal life or in eternal judgment. And so God does not take it lightly. The ending of the lives of the folks in this city would have meant eternal judgment for them. On top of that, God goes on. Verse 11, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God speaks to the folks in the city, and depending on how you take it, and, and Bible students and scholars go a couple of directions on this. Some would say that the 120,000 people there refers to all the population of the city. Others would say that the 120,000 refers to the number of children that are in the city. The key is the, that little phrase, who do not know their right hand from the left. That would describe kids, little kids, and folks who are mentally incapacitated. And the point is, there are innocent folks there who, who do not know, they're, they're not mature enough to, to know the difference between right and wrong. And so, Jonah, don't you at least have pity on them? Shouldn't I have pity and concern and compassion on those who are innocent in the city? Not to mention the animals. The cattle, the puppy dogs. That's where I lean. But the other way to take this position, or this, is that it's referring to the entire population, and a lot depends on how many folks are in Nineveh. 
Was it a half a million or was it 120,000? Your answer is nobody knows right now. But if, if it was referring to the whole population of 120,000, the point is it's not folks who are innocent, it's folks who are ignorant. You see, we can go to Jesus, for example. You recall in Matthew 9, and Jesus is looking at the crowds as he's, uh, they're there in Galilee, and He sees this crowd and it says, He had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. And on the cross, you recall Jesus as He's hang, being hung on the cross and the very same folks who had driven the nails through His hands and His feet are now gambling for His clothing. And He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. See, God has compassion on folks not just who are innocent, but even those who are guilty but are ignorant. People who are caught in the the lies and the deceitfulness of sin who have been blinded by Satan and they are guilty. But God still has compassion on them. So whichever way you take it, both concepts are biblical. And the point is that God is saying, shouldn't I have compassion on these folks? And Jonah, shouldn't you as my spokesman? Jonah has been exposed He knows truth about God. He works for God. He wears the t-shirt that says prophet, you know. Got the name tag, whatever. And yet the reality is he has no real love for God. And it has been shown dramatically and drastically in this story because you see, Jonah prefers his way over God's Word. If Jonah loved God, If Jonah had a heart for God, whenever God's Word said this, but Jonah's feelings, Jonah's thoughts, Jonah's Jonah's desires went this way, Jonah would say, okay, here's what I want, but God, there's what you want, okay. A heart for God, love for God would say, okay, God, I I give. I'm going to follow you. And every time that choice is given to Jonah, he goes the other way. He runs from God or he argues with God. He spits and spats and and fumes. Secondly, Jonah doesn't love what God loves. And what God has just said here is, I care about people. Even Ninevites. The moral scum of the earth, God says, I care about them. You see, the reality is, if Jonah loved God, he would love what God loves. God loves people. The Apostle John put it this way. He said, If anyone says, I love God, but does, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love for God changes us when we cannot hate our brother. Those two things, if we have hatred for our brother, we don't have a heart for God. Interesting thing. We want to know now what is what happens. Does Jonah fail this school or does he learn his lesson and pass? And we look for the next verse and we turn the page and we realize 
we're now into the book of Micah. <laughs> the story just ended. And we wonder what happened. <laughs> the answer to that is, it's a great story. And God doesn't want us to really know what happened to Jonah because that really isn't the issue. God used this story of Jonah to teach and to instruct the nation of Israel and to teach and instruct us. He leaves us hanging because the real issue isn't what happened to Jonah. The real issue is what are we going to do with the truths that are here in this book? Four huge lessons. First one is this. God ultimately will judge evil. God was going to judge Nineveh. God does judge evil in the short term in this world, but ultimately there is a judgment coming, a final judgment of evil. It is surely coming. The Bible could not be clear. There is judgment day. Every person, great, small, will stand before Jesus Christ. There's judgment coming. The good news is this. That's bad news because every one of us, the Bible says, is sinners. The good news is that there is grace. God offers grace. He's, he offers, because of His compassion, He offers forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. He offers that to anyone who will repent and call upon Him just like He gave grace and forgiveness to the people of Nineveh. That's why God sent Jesus. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. So, if you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says there is judgment for sin and you're a sinner. But God made a provision through Jesus Christ to cover your sin. He invites you to trust in Him. There's another lesson, and that is to check your own heart. Not just if you haven't ever trusted Christ, but to check your heart. You see, it's not just the evil Assyrians who needed to repent. It was God's prophet. And this is written to the, no to the northern kingdom of Israel, and it's, it's a message to them. You need to examine your hearts. Because it wasn't just those, those Assyrians who needed to repent, but the religious Jews of Israel. And it's not just the Jews of Israel in Jonah's day who needed, but the religious folk in our day, religious folk in the church who know how to put on a good show on Sundays, who, like the Jews of that day, felt secure in their heritage, who felt secure in their traditions, who felt secure perhaps like Jonah in that they had some right beliefs about God. We know the truth about God because we've studied the Scriptures and we can spit out the right sayings. I worship Yahweh, the Maker of heaven and earth. Yeah. They professed all the right things, but like Jonah, had no real heart for God. Harley pointed out well this morning in Psalm 111, which calls us to Worship God with our whole heart. The book of Jonah calls us to question, does God have my whole heart? 
Or am I still clinging to some worthless idols? Some of the images and the desires and the pictures of God that I have in my own mind of what I want God to be like, or I, you know, I only follow God this far, but over here, no, it's, you know, does He have my whole heart? Lastly, we should be moved by God's heart. If we're believers in Jesus, shouldn't we love what God loves? Shouldn't we be moved by His heart for a lost world? Three billion people today live where there's little or no access to the gospel of Jesus. That should break our heart. Over a century ago, the thought of a land with 60 million people without one Christian and no one to tell them about Jesus broke the hearts of three young men and they determined to do something about it. So in 1893, Walter Goins and Roland Bingham and Thomas Kent set off for Africa's Sudan. In those days, Africa, that part of Africa especially, was called the white man's graveyard. They didn't come back when people went. Existing missionary organizations said going there was an impossible venture, but their heart broke for people who were lost without Christ. It wasn't many months after they arrived that Goins and Kent were dead of disease. In Goins, Walter Goins' last journal entry, he wrote these words. He said, Well, give glory to God. He has enabled me to make a hard fight for the Sudan. I have no regret for undertaking this venture. And in this manner, my life has not been thrown away. The one surviving guy, Bingham, came back home seriously ill. He recovered and in 1900 he went back with a second team, which also failed. But it was in 1901, a year after that, they succeeded in establishing the first base of the Sudan Interior Mission in the interior of Nigeria. Through their efforts and countless others who followed Hundreds of them who gave their lives in the process. Today, 40% of the people in that region of Africa identify themselves as Christians. That's why we as a church make a big deal about missions. Carrying the gospel to places where people don't know Christ. Some of our church family we sent over as a team to go meet with some of our missionary partners in the southern Philippines. They'll be coming back later today. Be praying for their safety, but I'm looking forward to a report from them next week as to what God is doing there. We need to be invested with prayer and invested with our giving and invested with our efforts in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. How can we do less? And we will not do less if we are not like Jonah but rather we are people who have God's heart. Let's pray. Father, I'm amazed that You use Jonah. There's some comfort there. What that means is if you can use an unwilling and begrudging prophet, it means you can use willing folks who, as we look in the mirror, we don't have a lot to offer. 
Father, what we are convicted of as we look and we see that so much of the time we are like Jonah. We have little heart for You. We're really wrapped up in ourselves. Lord, change us. Give us hearts that beat hard for You. Give us concern for those who do not know Christ. For the message of Jesus is the message of life. The message of grace. May we share it even this week with those you bring into our path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.